Welcome to The Core of the Matter, the weekly public affairs show of 90.3, The Core. I'm your host, Yashwant Manjanath, and this week we're going to be finishing up discussions about the recent revolutions in the Middle East, and my guests include Hafsa Ahmad, my friend from high school who was supposed to be on last week, but of course those of you who are listening know that there are some technical difficulties with that interview. And I'll also be speaking with a representative from Baca, an on-campus Middle Eastern group. So, without further ado, let's go to part one of my interview with my friend Hafsa. Hope you guys enjoy it, and find it interesting and informative as always. You're listening to Core of the Matter. You're on 90.3 The Core. Okay, well, it's good to finally have the uh, technical difficulties from last week worked out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, so uh, can you introduce yourself for the audience? Sure. My name is Hafsa Ahmed. I am a third year at Middlebury College. Okay, and uh, what do you study there? I'm actually studying international politics and economics with a focus in the Middle East and a minor in Arabic and religion. Um, I'm, I was in Alexandria in order to study for my Arabic, um, to improve my Arabic study abroad in the region that you focus on is actually required for my major. All right, and uh, what are your future plans after college? After college, I'm hoping to return to um, Pakistan, actually, to work in development and some human rights or um, just general women's rights organizations. Okay. Zero nonprofit work. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, that sounds really interesting. So, now, you were you were in Egypt prior to uh, and during part of the revolution. Uh, can you tell us why? Yeah. Like I mentioned earlier, for my major, I studied at Middlebury. The study abroad in the region that you, is, that you study is required. And so, since I'm studying Arabic, uh, we have a school abroad in Alexandria, Egypt, and um, we work in conjunction with Alexandria. Right, but and I so mean, I was, sorry? yeah. What uh, what made you pick Egypt? Um, well, basically, like our school, Middlebury has one program in the Middle East, and that's in Egypt. And Middlebury, Middlebury's language program is renowned. I mean, um, nationally for um, its like high standards of Arabic, and also for its immersion aspect. So basically, a lot of study abroad. Schools and programs in the Middle East have, they have very good Arabic, very good um, standard of education, but um, what Middlebury offers is an immersion aspect, which basically means that you sign a language pledge when you arrive at any school that they have, and um, you swear, basically, and you sign off, never to speak a specific language. And of course, exceptions come in when you have to, when you're in, like, you know, emergency circumstances or when you speak to family, for example, but otherwise with professors, with each other, not a word of English or any other language for that matter is allowed. And so I really, um, I really enjoyed the um, the Middlebury experience. Or like, I mean, I was only there for three weeks, but the Middlebury aspect is, is very, very immersive. And so you learn much quicker too. Right, but I mean, did you feel a little unlucky at all, seeing as how you went to Egypt right after, like, I guess during the first period of serious unrest in the country in like thirty years? Yeah, I would say it was incredibly unlucky, but at the same time, very lucky. Simply because uh, it was such an experience. I mean, honestly, to see history in the making is something that very few people can see. And I think that um, to be able to say, you know, I, I saw this such and such happen. I, I mean, um, in the beginning of the Arab Revo- the revolutions in, in the Middle East, because, I mean, there's more than just one now. This is a historic moment, groundbreaking and absolutely magnificent. So I would say I was, in fact, very lucky to be there, even though my study abroad experience was cut short. I mean, I can study abroad any time in my life, but how often do you get to witness a revolution? Yeah, and you know, now you're here on the radio talking to me, so I guess uh, everything worked out just the way it was supposed to. So uh, <laughs> so what did you see while you were there? 
Well, the first day that revolution started was um, January 25th, which is the day of rage. And um, on the 25th, I saw pretty minor protests on the street. Um, I was in a pretty populated part of town, of the city, and Chelsea, in Alexandria. And so we saw pretty large demonstrations by, but they were peaceful. Um, they were with their families. They were um, students, and everybody was chanting together. And it was it was it was interesting to see, but you know, it was nothing. Um, it was nothing. Um, horrifying or anything, nothing like Cairo, um, because Alexandria was relatively more. But then on Wednesday and Thursday, it died down for a bit, um, and you can see many Friday in the morning. I um, got on Tuesday night. My friend and I against, of course, the um, program and we tried to find a small protest, which was quite interesting because we ran into one and ran into like this, this um, entire armed escort of police and um, riot uh, riot control, and they just, like, literally were spilling onto the street and following protesters, and my friend and I got tear gas for a bit, but yes, it was interesting. It was nothing, uh, <laughs> nothing dangerous at all. Oh, the, the tear gas part, and that, no, not dangerous? Oh, no, it wasn't, it wasn't, like, that much tear gas, and it was a little bit, and, like, I mean, it was twice, but, like, it was basically, we got tingling in our eyes, we started crying a bit i feel like uh you know most people would would consider tear gas a sign of danger but uh did you ever feel like your life was in danger no actually not on tuesday not at all i mean tear gas, it was just sort of you know it was um it was a bit it, was, it wasn't that much of, it's not like we we're in the middle of a crowd it's not like people were running it's not like the police was attacking us but um on saturday night actually was um on Friday night, there was some there was some amount of danger, but we didn't, we felt quite secure, simply because on Friday during the day, some bombs there were some bombs falling, some um, buildings were lit on fire, people were um, getting a little bit more violent, and the police were uh, the police were driven out of town that day, out of the city that day, and so it felt like we should have been we should have felt like we were in danger, but we were not in the direct line of fire, and so it's really I did not feel like I was in danger until Saturday. Um, because all of Friday night there were chants and there was um, the curfew had been put in place had been implemented, but not very um, not very many uh, protests had turned violent. And then on Saturday during the day, that's when it became things became much more real and people were people were getting angrier because the government was had shut off phone communication, internet, and everything, even text messaging. And so people were angry. People were taking to the streets much more. And the police had been run out of town. And so there were gangs, there were thugs, um, and looters everywhere during the night. And on Saturday night was really when I felt like we were in danger, simply because um, we, we could hear screams and we could hear chants, but they weren't organized demonstrations against the government. It was more people attacking people and men attacking each other with pipes and clubs and knives and guns. And it was really, you know, it was horrifying at that point because the entire time, I remember I'd been incredibly composed, but then by Saturday night, um, when I looked outside my window and it was, past midnight and there were men chasing each other and I heard screaming and I ran to the window and there were just men chasing each other right below my window so close and they had pipes and guns and clubs and they were literally I could see the look of murder in their eyes and that's when I felt okay I'm in danger and at the same time my roommate got a phone call and she turned to me and she said Hufford they're racing they're rapping people and I said rapping what do you mean they're rapping people and she goes no they're R-A-P-E they're, they're raping people and I mean she was an Egyptian so she didn't speak Arabic uh, English um, too fluently but and so when she said that, though, she's like, they're breaking into houses and they're raping people. That's when I felt, okay, my life is in danger. Especially because 20 minutes later, we were told that our security guards had fled. And so, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, following that, um, there was 
very quickly a neighborhood watch that was organized uh, by the people who just who live nearby. None of them had any connection to us whatsoever, but it was such a good show of just, you know, what good people Arabs really are, what good people Egyptians truly were, especially Alexandrians. They had no reason whatsoever to protect us, but a bunch of men just came out in the streets and um, surrounded our building to protect us from looters. And it was the most moving thing, really. I mean, we didn't see them even once, but we were told, like, we were getting reports and stuff that they were there and they were protecting our building. And it, just, it was so heartwarming because these men, they're not our brothers, they're our fathers. They're strangers, but they were just as ready to put their lives at risk in order to save us. So who are you afraid of the most, like, you were afraid of the looters more so than, uh, you know, anyone from the Mubarak regime or, or uh, any of the protesters? Like, how exactly, like, where where did you feel the danger was coming from? Um, definitely the, the looters and the thugs, because the thugs were um, backed by Mubarak. Basically, what it was, it was the same sort of um, team that uh, Saddam Hussein used in Iraq where the police were run out of town, and then um, the government literally paid thugs and um, gangs to go out into the streets and strike fear into everybody so that they would feel the need for police again and the need for the government, the need for organization. And uh, this is something which was widely written about doing um, newspapers, or trust me, it's not a conspiracy theory, but basically these men were running around with clubs and guns, and you know they had the ability to do whatever they wanted to, whoever they wanted to simply because they wanted to scare the population into asking for Mubarak, into asking for the police. And so they were the ones who we feared. It was never the people who were demonstrating against the government because they had nothing against Americans. They had nothing against each other. It was the government that they wanted down, and that was it. It was not religious. It was not sectarian. It was nothing. It was simply, we want democracy. Yeah, that's that's amazing that you say uh, it was the Mubarak regime that paid these thugs to stir up trouble. And you know, you, you mentioned that it was reported in the newspaper. This isn't a conspiracy theory. It's funny that uh, you say that because I don't know if you've been following uh, what's been going on in Wisconsin with uh, Scott Walker, but during a phone call with uh, the fake David Koch that got him into a lot of trouble, yeah, of yeah he, he actually said he considered uh, putting troublemakers into the crowds at the Wisconsin protests to make it look like uh, those protesters were, were violent and out of control. So uh, it seems like certain Republican governors seem to favor the same tactics that Hosni Mubarak was trying uh, to use in Egypt. I had no idea. That's ridiculous. But I feel like that is definitely um, a a tactic that um, is, has been employed historically by dictators. But I mean, wow. Yeah. It, well, I <laughs> it doesn't uh, doesn't doesn't say much about Scott Walker, does it? That he seems to have some dictatorial impulses. Wow, that's ridiculous. But yeah, I mean, it's something that people didn't see. You know, it's all about the perception. And uh, if people start to think that Wisconsin is now full of troublemakers and rioters, then, I mean, I suppose they would be put off It's the same sort of thing. Wow, it's like mentally subduing the populace. And and it's extremely <laughs> ironic that they literally were happening back-to-back, and we got to see the contrast of uh, of what went down with Mubarak versus what's going, what's happening right now in Wisconsin. So, are you still in touch with anyone on the ground in Egypt? Absolutely. I actually just spoke with my um, my roommate the other day, and she's Egyptian, and another one of my friends is also Egyptian. And um, one of them lives closer to the countryside, so she's left the city. Um, she left the next very next day, uh, the, the day that we left the building. And another one of my friends actually is from Kuwait, and she's Egyptian, but she her entire family is in Kuwait, and so she couldn't leave the country. So she's still in Alexandria, but she's with her brother, which is good. 
but yeah, they're both still in Egypt. They're doing well, though. <laughs> so w- what made them stay behind? Like, how, how did you get out of the country before them? Well, I mean, in all honesty, it's a matter of who has the means to leave. And as Americans, and as just, and not even as Americans, but as people with, you know, with families and who have the ability, who have, like, the means of paying and with a college that's ready to charter a, a plane out of there, we had the possibility. They didn't even have the opportunity if they wanted to. And to be completely honest, they don't want to because this is their country. This is their country that's finally gaining freedom. You know, they're people who are finally, their brothers and their fathers are the ones in the streets. And so they wanted to be there. And hell, I wanted to be there, you know. But they are, they're witnessing their country changing. And so why would they leave? Wait, so you wanted to be there? So what made you leave then? Well, I didn't really have a choice, unfortunately. <laughs> I mean, it was dangerous, and I was fully aware of the fact that if I did stay behind, I wouldn't have family, I wouldn't have somebody to train to, somebody to protect me. And my family was calling me back. And the school, um, I mean, the U.S. State Department did, the U.S. Embassy in Egypt did say U.S. citizens should evacuate. And so our school, our program was just like, you know, we can't be responsible for anybody. Like, we need to get everybody out of here. And so we all, you know, we were uh, evacuated to the airport on um, Sunday morning, but then we had to wait for about 34 to 38 hours in the airport for a plane to take us out of there. The U.S. Embassy, the, sorry, the U.S. government did not send us a plane. We were in Alexandria, so most of the planes were in um, Cairo. And so instead, our college ended up charting an entire flight to Prague. Actually, you know, I probably shouldn't be surprised that you didn't want to leave while the revolution was going on. I just thought of that yearbook photo of you wearing that T-shirt. I forget uh, what specifically it said, but you know, why don't you uh, why don't you tell the audience about that? <laughs> yeah, actually, I have two T-shirts that I used to wear in South Africa High School all the time. One of them said, "My name causes social security alerts. What does yours do?" <laughs> Which is, of course, a personal favorite. And um, my other one said, "This is what a radical Muslim feminist looks like." In that picture, I think that I was voted most likely to change the world. And there's a picture of me, and I don't remember who was with me, but we had, like, Sharpies, and we had a globe in our hand, and we were pretending to change the world that way. So, yep. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Nothing's changed. <laughs> that's fu- I'd forgotten about that. Wow. So as soon as you decide to go to Egypt for study abroad, the Mubarak regime is overthrown after, like, 30 years. Exactly. So then, uh, yeah, I guess it's it's all you then. It was. Of course, that was actually my mission there. No, um, it, seems like I, it seems like I proved the people right if we all voted for me for senior superlative. So there you go. I mean, SBHS, I hope you're proud. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I feel like telling some of our old teachers about what happened. Have you actually gotten in touch with anybody from, from high school like, and told them about this? Not really. I mean, you know, it's, sort of, it's the sort of thing that once I got back, I just felt so relieved to be with my family again, especially after that last night. That I just I couldn't I didn't really bring myself but uh, I can bring myself to talk about it. I mean my closest friends know, but not that many people. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, as soon as the podcast from this interview goes up, I'm going to make sure that you know our town has a Twitter feed now. So I'm I'm going to make sure they tweet this out so that everybody knows your story. Oh, that sounds good. I mean, maybe we should. I should. I probably should have told like SBHS and like, hey guys, like what's up? And I know a few of the teachers were aware because a few of them emailed me. But hey, maybe maybe I'll get in touch with them again. <laughs> All right, so what what's going on right there, right now in Egypt, since Mubarak was overthrown? Well, there is an interim government that was set up, um, and it's headed by a council, basically. And, um, I mean, I don't, to be completely honest, I'm not an expert on Egypt, nor do I want to say anything that's incorrect. But there are both uh, military and civil, civil uh, ministers who are currently like, co-ruling um, Egypt. And then by September, there should be elections, and hopefully there will be free and fair elections 
and um, the people are, you know, there, there are a multitude of people who are stepping up to to run in September. But um, as of right now, it's, it's really hard to predict who will win. Um, and hopefully, and, you know, everybody just has their fingers crossed that the military will step down. And so far, it seems like the military does not have a reason to um, to stay in power. The military is basically um, made up of civilians who are doing, who are doing their, um, their duty, their obligatory duty. And so it's a lot of people, you know, their brothers and their fathers who have no interest um, And, you know, everybody's just crossing their fingers. The people love the army in Egypt. It's, they're all very well revered. And um, one of my friends here is actually Egyptian. And what she keeps reminding us is, you know, on the streets, if you're an Egyptian and you see an ar- and if you see the army, it's automatic success, no matter who he is. He's like your brother. And so they're very well loved. And so I can't imagine that it would, they'd be so power-hungry to stay in At the same time, though, Egypt is one of the countries that receives the most military aid from the United States government, and I, I think a majority of their funding comes from the United States government, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, so, yeah. The um, U.S. is the second largest. Uh, Egypt is the second largest recipient of U.S. foreign aid, military aid. So you know, with that information in mind, what impact do you think the United States government will have on uh, shaping the future direction of Egypt now that the Mubarak regime is overthrown mm-hmm. and, and the army is in charge? Well, see, this is something that I've been wondering about for a while, too, but the U.S. has not been able to take any definitive stance on Egypt simply because it's such a grassroots, organic movement of the people that they cannot, if, if the U.S. attempts to intervene in any such way, financially, militarily, politically, the people would just revolt against that. And it's so, such a strong sentiment that this is Egyptian. Do not get involved. When I was there, the first thing that people said is, we do not want the U.S. here. And it wasn't hatred against the American people, and it wasn't hatred against the U.S. government. It was just the fact that this is pure, and we want to keep it that way. And it's actually quite, it was quite inspiring, because it's a matter of, it's not that they want Mubarak out of Al-Qaeda. I mean, they did, but they wanted it to be from the people. And they want the future of Egypt to be shaped by the people, not by the U.S. government. And so, like, even though the U.S. does have a stake, and even though the Egyptian army, um, Egyptian military does depend on the U.S., I think that the sentiment is so strongly, like, pure Egyptian, that if they tried, if the U.S. tried to intervene directly, it would be a cause of catastrophe, I think. It would just backfire horribly. Well, that certainly makes a lot of sense. Now, here in America, we hear a lot about the Muslim Brotherhood as this boogeyman and how horrible it would be if they were to take over the country and what that would mean for the United States. What did you learn about the Muslim Brotherhood while you were there in Egypt, if anything? Well, to be honest, pertaining to the revolution, the Muslim Brotherhood did not take a stance in the beginning, and nor did people want the Muslim Brotherhood in power. Um, while I was there, this was, of course, a question that a lot of the Americans asked, and everybody responded that this is not a religious revolution. This is not Iran. This will not turn into um, an Islamic republic, simply because the people just want democracy, and it is the people who are both Muslim and Christian. There is a Christian Coptic minority in Egypt, and both both parties are on their feet. It was not... Um, while the Muslims were praying in Tahrir Square in Cairo, the Christians made a chain, a human chain to guard them. And it's just, it's such a beautiful thing because they're so united. And um, one of the, I was speaking to somebody, to a reporter the other day who was here from um, from Cairo, his name is Theodore May, he graduated from Middlebury in 2008. And what he was saying was that when he was in Cairo, a man came in, when he was in Tahrir Square, a man came holding the Quran and holding it in the air saying, democracy, democracy. But another man turned him and he said, just put that away. That's not necessary. We don't want people to think that this is an Islamic revolution. It's not. And basically, like, what it speaks to is the fact that people want who the people want in power, not the Muslim Brotherhood. And the Muslim Brotherhood does not have the majority vote sentiment right now. I mean, if they were, if they were in a one-democratic state, I mean, they would, but it would be 
not, if they're not, I don't think that Egypt is at threat of a Muslim Brotherhood coup or takeover of any sort. Yeah, I actually uh, recently wrote an article about the Muslim Brotherhood, and, and there was this great survey that uh, Nicholas Kristof pointed out in the New York Times mm-hmm. about Alexandria and Cairo and, and how the Muslim Brotherhood only has a 15% approval rating there. Why do you think they continue to be brought up as this for the purpose of fear-mongering in the media here in the United States? That's just it, though. I honestly believe it's just fear-mongering and Islamophobia. I'm not sure if you heard about the horrific protest in um, Orange County, California, over the weekend. It was basically at an um, Ignatian Islamic Circle of North America um, meeting, and it was like a uh, flood relief effort um, and just a humanitarian effort. Um, and people were on the streets, like Islamophobic comments and like posters and screaming. People were just screaming terrible things. And, you know, I think it's a matter of the media constantly and repeatedly making Islam out to be the enemy and making every single Arab country and every single country in the Muslim world seem Islamic, like, um, extremist, which not. And to be completely honest, when I was there, I did not encounter any sort of extremism. And I am Muslim, so if people were to be open, they would be open with me um, Islamically. And people were very comfortable with their religion. And I interacted with people from all the different, um, not all the different um, social uh, classes, but most. You know, I knew people in my college who were from very poor, very rural areas, but at the same time I met people who were extremely rich. And nobody seemed to want to impose their religion upon each other. Not at all. And so I think that in the West we often choose to see Arabs and Islam as interchangeable, which is not the case. And especially not the case with Islamic fundamentalism. I think that there is definitely a large element of fear-mongering that we keep, keep on bringing up the Muslim Brotherhood when we talk about um, Pakistan and we talk about Afghanistan, we bring up the Taliban and talk about Iraq, we bring up Al-Qaeda, but that's not all there is. I mean, so, I'd say the same with Pakistan. I was in Pakistan this summer, but, you know, and all the West ever sees is Taliban this, Taliban that. But when I was there, I didn't see any of that. Of course, I didn't see the Taliban, but I didn't see it in the people either. And I think that it's just a matter of what's constantly perceiving the Muslim world is just this one chunk of Islamic fundamentalism, which is far, far from the truth. So what do you think is driving that instinct to fearmonger and the Islamophobia that we see in the Western media? Like, who's behind it? That? Yeah, who's behind it? Like, what's driving it? And for what purpose? To be honest, I think of the Red Scare sometimes, and I think of how it's just a matter of politics, international politics, and the subjugation of a certain enemy and of the the vilification of that enemy. You know what I mean? Like, during the, the Red Scare, it was Russia, it was the Soviet Union that everybody was meant to be afraid of and that everybody was meant to hate. And I think right now, the Middle East slash the Muslim world is the new USSR. And all the West does and all the media does is uh, t- make them out to be this demonic, monolithic block, which is not. I mean, I think it's just, I think it's a result of the Iraq war, the, um, the war in Afghanistan, and post 9-11, has always been Islamophobia. And Islamophobia has been growing simply because it's um, beneficial to, to the politics. You know, we're at war with the people, we're at war with the country, and we don't want people to think we're at war with our friends. We want them to think that we're at war with Islamic fundamentalists. And that everybody in that region is Islamic fundamentalist, which, of course, is, again, far from the truth. But it's a matter of politics, and that's all it comes down to. I don't think that Americans, um, I mean, I myself am American, I don't think Americans are inherently anti-Muslim or inherently anti-pluralism. But I think it's a, a result of the politics and the media playing into the politics. So what you're saying is it's all about the politics of fear that we've seen throughout history, and it's it's done to drive whatever political objective the people who are engaging in, in the tactic desire. 
Absolutely, absolutely. I think that like the media in America is so politicized and, and so um, so biased in the sense that no matter who, no matter what the truth is, we'll always see what the government wants us to see and what's better for the government. <laughs> okay, so I mean, uh, that, and, and I don't think I'm not saying this like in terms of like you know. I think there are definitely sources out there. I mean, I mean, look at your radio show, for example. You know, there's plenty of um, outlets. There's plenty of people like Kristoff who will turn around and criticize. But what it comes down to is outlets, and I'm sorry if anybody out there is listening to this is a Fox News fan, but the fact is that more Americans watch Fox News than any other channel every single day. And I find Fox News to be incredibly biased and incredibly Islamophobic and um, anti-Eastern. Uh, and honestly, like, I think that that is that speaks to the fact that most that American Americans are influenced by their media. Well, this is a little bit awkward, but I actually uh, write for a guy on Fox News Radio. But uh, anyway, <laughs> I um, mean, I apologize. That's, that's, that's my opinion. You have yours. Well, I, no comment on that. I'm I'm not really supposed to, to bring that up while I'm on air here. Anyway, but yeah, <laughs> anyway, so what impact do you think the revolution that we saw in Egypt, which was a relatively peaceful revolution and a really concerted, nonviolent uh, approach that that the protest movement in Egypt took, uh, how do you think that will impact the future of Middle East politics and the future of revolutions as we see them throughout the world? Um, to be completely honest, I think Tunisia and Egypt were both specific cases. And as much as they were, the military was with the people. The government did not have such harsh crackdowns like Libya is currently seeing. I think it's beautiful that we saw both of them without major bloodshed and in a relatively short span of time. But I don't think there are any one example. I don't think that the Middle East is going to follow the, that one framework. You know, I don't think the rest of the Middle East, unfortunately, will be able to see as um, peaceful, and maybe they'll see more peaceful, completely possible, revolutions. But at the same time, we looked at Libya, and it's so starkly different from Egypt. Because Gaddafi is not afraid to crack down on these people, and the military is currently it's it's swaying, but it has so and it has so far been with Gaddafi and been killing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of protesters. And so, I don't think, unfortunately, that we can say that all future revolutions will be peaceful. I wish that we could, but I, I think Tunisia needs a great beginning. I mean, I certainly don't mean to imply that all revolutions from now on will be nonviolent. I I just think, given that Al Qaeda is out there and they have their message that okay, we need to overthrow some of these regimes uh, they mm-hmm. certainly were against the Mubarak regime themselves but their approach is one of, of violence of, of terrorism and this this was an alternative this was a real organic revolution that took place in Egypt and it, I guess I'm hoping that maybe that can serve as an example to people out there in the Middle East who are dissatisfied with their tyrannical regimes that, that they can achieve the type of change they're looking for without resorting to violence and if al-qaeda's message no longer resonates with people in the middle east then maybe that's the way we actually win the war on terror here in this country absolutely i think i mean i think you put it perfectly i mean i really hope that this is true and i really think that it's possible simply because the people have seen that they have worked in tunisia and that really influenced i think the people in egypt because um they would say you know we don't need violence we don't need to follow we don't need to turn for example to the muslim brotherhood you know, and I really hope that this carries through. And, I mean, to be honest, like, I couldn't have put it better myself. Um, I think that this provides a great alternative. I think that Arabs um, and Muslims and just people in, in general, like, will see that, you know, the Egyptians could do it peacefully. So can we. 
and I don't think that, um, and, I, sorry, and I do hope that it'll continue to be, um, you know, sort of like the light for future generations or future revolutions, you know? I guess, yeah, that's just the, uh, uh, we're still young and idealistic, so I guess. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's sad, but too, but one can hope. Yeah, one can hope. So you mentioned Libya earlier, and I actually haven't admittedly been following that situation as closely as I'd like. Oh, what do you know about it? I mean, Libya is an incredibly different situation from Egypt. And again, like I said, I'm not a political analyst, unfortunately. I'm not a professor in the Middle East, although I am a student. However, in Libya, we're seeing a lot of anti-Gaddafi, and Gaddafi is one of the um, uh, longest-standing, if not the longest-standing um, dictator in the Middle East. And basically, the difference with Libya is that it's very tribal, um, and so people people see that it could potentially disintegrate into um, warring tribal regions. However, right now, people are united. And at the same time, in certain areas of um, Libya, like Benghazi, they've already been liberated. Um, Gaddafi has stepped out and been like, you know what, okay, I, I, can't, I can't be involved here anymore, which I think is a great, great indicator. But at the same time, the, the military has been cracking down on the people on the orders of Gaddafi. And so hundreds of people have been dying in Tripoli, in the capital. Um, but at the same time, we see a certain amount of, we see people defecting from the military. Fighter pilots let, were told to go and bomb certain um, protesters. They ended up, they, they intentionally went to Malta and said simply to escape, simply to say that we will not bomb our own people. And we've seen more and more, we've seen ambassadors step down, not no longer representing Libya. Even the director of, um, of LSC has stepped down for one Working with the working with Libya, um, and for accepting thousands of pounds from Libya, and so I really think that um, you know there are people, sentiment of the people is still anti-Gaddafi. However, Gaddafi has a very strong grip right now, and he's been, if not the military, then mercenaries he's sending in, and it's going to be harder, and it's already harder in Libya. But um, they want the they want democracy, they want freedom, and they, have, they are the people who have been successful longest. What I have heard about Libya is that the violence there has really been something that we didn't see in Egypt and Tunisia. And do you think that's directly related to the grip that Gaddafi has on the government still? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because the military chose in Egypt not to fire on the people, is one of the, one of the biggest reasons that we didn't see a high casualty rate. In Libya, however, we can't say the same, simply because, yeah, Gaddafi is such a stronghold in the military. And so they are bombing, they are killing. What role do you think the United States will play in the future of Libya and, and the eventual resolution of the uh, Libyan revolution? I think that the UN and the US in general have been taking a hardline stance against Libya. However, they will not intervene militarily, I don't think. You know, the West has been condemning Libya, but what more can they do? The UN has been suggesting sanctions and a no-fly zone, which is quite possible, and which I've, I have read some pieces from Libyans, um, which say, like, you know, a no-fly zone could be beneficial. But they don't want anything more. Libyan people think the exact same thing. They do not want anything more from the US. The U.S., I think, would be more fearful of a Libya falling, but then again, we didn't have Libya in our control before. And so who is to say that the future will be worse? Well, what I've heard is that part of the reason the, the United States is, is hesitating a little bit with regards to Libya is that uh, some of our oil companies do business with Gaddafi, and having him there is beneficial to corporate profits for, for big oil. And what impact mm-hmm. do you think that that might have on what position we're taking here, or the United well, States government is taking? Yeah. Well, the U.S. government, the U.S. itself, like openly doesn't uh, doesn't actually uh, take buy oil from um, Libya, to what I've learned in class, at least. <laughs> but I mean, there are other Western powers that do, 
and I think that, you know, petrol is, like Gaddafi said um, in his speech, uh, petrol is an important factor and a distinguishing factor of Libya. However, when the people want it this bad, I think it's hard to say that the U.S. will intervene simply because the entire um, Western world is is rooting for the Libyan people, you know, even if it's just, you know, um, for, the, um, for the face of it. But the people, like, for example, even like David Cameron, even Hillary Clinton, people have been waiting for um, the Libyans to completely just overthrow Gaddafi. And so I think that if the U.S. were to intervene simply on the basis of petrol, and even if it were somewhat, somewhat covert, I think the rest of the Western government well, would sit down and say, no, like, I mean, this, is, this isn't possible because this is a grassroots democracy. This is what America stands for. Yeah, I don't mean to imply that it's that's everyone in the United States government either that's being hesitant okay. for, you know, those reasons. Uh, maybe that would be pretty loathsome. But uh, I do think, you know, there are some certain politicians who are more uh, in the pockets of big oil who'd be, yeah. who have yeah, expressed some hesitancy. To... Absolutely, that's true. But, sorry? Yeah. Um. No, I mean, I think it's true, and I think it's, it's, it's sad and scary to an extent, but I don't think that they all have enough power because it's not just America, it's um, the entire world. You know, it's the entire West and it's the rest of the Middle East. And one of the things I was recently discussing with a professor was that if the Middle East, um, if you have a Middle Eastern state see an intervention of any sort in Libya, I think that would just make them angrier, simply because it's happened in Tunisia and it's happened in Egypt without any foreign interference, and maybe that's why it's succeeded. And so I think no matter how strong that sentiment is in the is is in Congress, I don't think the rest of the Western world or the rest of the Middle East would let it happen. Another reason that I've heard for why the United States government has been hesitant to back the uh, Libyan revolution and, and the overthrow of Gaddafi is, well, it's a much better reason, but it's that he might threaten to hold hostage some American citizens who are still in Libya, and you might see some sort of situ- hostage situation like you saw with Iran in the in the late 1970s. Uh, what do you think about that? Have you heard about that? And, I actually uh, haven't heard about that. Yeah, no, I haven't heard about that, but that would be, um, again, like a very tricky situation. I don't know, to be completely honest, I don't know enough about that to have an opinion, but I I would hope that there would be better ways of dealing with it than to suppress it. Democratic revolution. Well, yeah, hopefully yeah. the uh, Obama administration is doing something behind the scenes to, to exactly. get whatever people we have in Libya uh, out of there. Out of there. Absolutely. Okay. Well, this was a great conversation. It was awesome having you on. And great. Thank uh, you. Yeah, thank you for doing it. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs> it was great to talk to you. All right. Welcome back to Core of the Matter here on 90.3 The Core. And joining me now is... Sammy Jatan. I'm the events coordinator for BACA, Students United for Middle Eastern Justice. All right, and uh, for the rest of the hour, we're just going to be having a conversation about the organization and what exactly they do, how they feel about the recent events in the Middle East. So without further ado, let's get started. So, uh, Sammy, can you just tell us a little bit about what your role is at BACA and what exactly BACA's mission is as a student organization? Sure. We restarted BACA last semester after a year hiatus. I'm a fifth-year senior. I grew up on campus seeing a lot of issues unfold in the region, in the Middle East. There was Lebanon in 2006. There was assault, the assault on Gaza in 2008 and 2009. And uh, to, to say the least, they, they, really, they really bothered me and they really troubled me that there wasn't a strong 
political voice on campus to uh, to get the message out there and to to counter sort of the misinformation that was being spread either in the media or uh, in other sentiment on campus. So last semester, or even the semester before that, there were there were a couple of op-eds written in Targum, sort of uh, either blaming Palestinians or bashing Palestinians, blaming them for the unrest or the perpetual conflict in uh, Israel-Palestine. And uh, at that point, I was just, I just said, I've had enough. So, so let's start a group on campus to spread, to spread the truth or to spread a more accurate representation of, uh, of what's going on. So my role is really to, to plan and put on the events where we convey those messages. Baca doesn't only do uh, programming on Palestine. We're planning to have an event on March 21st for uh, a fundraiser for the Afghan Women's Mission. We're bringing Malai Joya, who's an outspoken political activist in Afghanistan. She's the first Afghan woman to be elected into parliament. And she, she's an excellent speaker. And we've we've also had events on Afghanistan, on gender in the Middle East. We were also planning to have an event on sexuality in the Middle East. So so our scope is wide. Okay. So what did you think of the interview that I just did? I you know I I really liked the points that she was hitting and uh, the the questions that were coming up. There's this there's really this fear. This as you called it, the boogeyman of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. The Muslim Brotherhood is not what it's made out to be in the conservative media or in the alarmist media that you know they're this religious fundamental group they're more the likes of of a community service group and uh working towards the the community this is this is everything that Bach is for is to give an accurate representation of of the situation in the middle east okay and what was Bach's official position about what was going on in egypt you know, we're we're very supportive of the people. It was it was a people's revolution, and we wanted to see Mubarak out. And Baca is not a monolithic voice on campus. Uh, you know, we're comprised of many different points of view and opinions among our constituents. We have a lot of Egyptian students that are part of Baca. Huda Metwelli is our PR. Uh, she is Egyptian herself. But I can't think of anyone that we've come in contact to with that wanted to keep Mubarak and even after he left we all recognized that there is a lot more to go but that's not to say that before the Egyptian revolution or before uh, the Tunisian revolution it's not to say that we didn't recognize that there were movements in the Middle East that were already occurring and they were already prominent in Jordan in Egypt in Tunisia these movements have always existed but now they're just coming to light you mentioned Tunisia now as I understand it, a few weeks ago, didn't uh, Baca have an event about the revolution in Egypt and Tunisia? Yes, we had a celebratory event to commemorate the people's revolutions in the Arab world, not just Tunisia, but by that point, this was when uh, Mubarak was outed. You know, the other revolutions were being sparked in Bahrain, in, in Jordan, there were protests, uh, and this was before Libya, of course. But this was just to bring the the feeling to campus that there is a change going on, and people of of Arab Middle Eastern heritage should be beginning to become politically aware and begin to celebrate the end of these oppressive post-colonial uh, regimes. Now, throughout the entire 
media coverage of the Egyptian revolution here in America among the Washington punditry. There's a lot of uh, conversation about what exactly should the role of the United States government should be, what the role of the Obama administration should be, what they should be doing as far as you know whether supporting Mubarak, the protesters, or how he should handle that situation. How do you think President Obama did handling the situation in Egypt from a foreign policy perspective? And what did you like about it? What did you dislike? Well, first of all, let me say that, uh, especially in the case of Libya, uh, the Targum published uh, something today, or, or start, sorry, republished something today from the Associated Press saying that now they're going to declare a, a no-fly zone over Libya. Well, you know, under whose authority? Are <laughs> well, the, I was asking about Egypt, but if you want yeah. to talk about Libya, that's perfectly fine. No, no, fine it, this too. is this is all part of the same uh, all right, all right. the same line uh, of questioning about foreign intervention. The United States has been in the Middle East since since the post-colonial era for strategic reasons, for resource reasons. Basically, it's time for them to get out. Obama took a very I'm not going to censor myself at all. Obama took a very cowardly stance when it came to asking Mubarak to step down. And for geopolitical reasons, because of Israel, or resource reasons because of the oil, he didn't really want to make that stance very clear. And I think the United States should just should stay out of it, you know, leave it to the people. And now that it's come to Libya, and the reason I bring it up is oil prices are going up. They're over $103 a barrel. I don't know what there are now, but this was as of last week. Um, I think that it's, it's it should really be not their main concern. If anything, they should be advocating humanitarianism, but nothing more, because anything else would be too, to further the, the post-colonial era, um, and we want autonomy in the Middle East. Well, what you bring up about Libya, I haven't actually been following that situation as, as closely as I should, admittedly, and I mean, I can't really comment on, on how accurate what you're saying about the Obama administration's position on Libya is, but as far as Egypt is concerned, the reason why it was an issue for the United States is because Egypt, of course, is one of the largest recipients of foreign aid from the United States, particularly military aid. And That's right now you're seeing in Egypt the military is actually in control of the government temporarily until you see democratic elections. So I guess that's why the United States – I had to have some sort of position on what was going on in Egypt just because, I mean, whether Obama wanted to or not, because of Egypt's status as a recipient of, of significant foreign aid, mm -hmm. he really had to take some sort of position. I mean, do, you re do you disagree with that? Or? Well, I, I just want to make one minor correction. Egypt is the second largest uh, receiver of... Uh, oh, no, I didn't of, say of they were the, the largest, one of the largest. Uh, so yeah. the first largest would, of course, be Israel, which receives close to $3 billion a year of financial aid and uh, undisclosed military aid. Now, Egypt receives close to half of that, but they're the second largest in the world that receives U.S. aid. And the reason for that is for strategic reasons. Hillary Clinton was very, I don't want to say very articulate, but more articulate than Obama. But Obama, you know, was very late in making a stance, was very late in making a comment. And by the time he did have a clear thing to say, Mubarak was already out. You know, Mubarak has been in power for over 30 years, and before that was Sadat. And his regime was very adamant at keeping the people under 
a heavy thumb. Miraculously, in the last elections, Mubarak won 99% of the vote. I doubt 99% of people ever liked Mubarak, even at when he was most popular. Yeah, you know, what I always fi- find interesting, I just learned this relatively recently about the Mubarak regime, was that ever since he took power, he declared martial law and, and a special emergency state of affairs mm-hmm. uh, to justify some of the more repressive actions mm-hmm. that his police force took against the citizens. And ironically, 30 years later, it led to a situation suitable for martial law where he's trying to hang on to control in the country so i definitely agree with you that mubarak has been a horribly repressive dictator over the years you mentioned that you felt like obama was cowardly in asking him to step down do you think just because he waited too long or or why would you say that was a cowardly decision by him i feel that if obama is sort of in a in a tight niche to say anything bad against the people that he's been blindingly support or not he but the United States government has been supporting for over 30 years the reason that Mubarak kept martial law for for the entire duration of his of his legacy is because Sadat was assassinated before him there is a lot of unrest in Egypt and it was quelled because the people were not for the neoliberal policies that Sadat implemented and Mubarak kept going and the oppressive military structure of Egypt was what kept people at bay. You see the same thing in Jordan. Jordan is a completely different situation because of the population and its lack of resources, but uh, what Jordan serves best is its uh, its location, and it's right next, to, right next to Israel. So to get back to your comment about Obama, it's not a... A separate issue. If he talks about Egypt, he talks about the entire region. If he talks about Jordan, it talks about the entire region. If he talks about Libya, again, he's talking about the entire region and America's stance in it. Okay, fair enough. Now, we're almost running out of time here, so before the interview ends, there's a couple of questions I, I definitely want to have your uh, answer to. Now, you mentioned that there's all sorts of uprisings going on in the Middle East uh, right now. Uh, you named a bunch of different countries in addition to the ones we hear about the most, Egypt, Tunisia, Libya. What do you think is acting as a catalyst to seeing these some of these repressive regimes finally being overthrown right now? What is that factor that maybe our listeners don't know about? Well... When the uh, Tunisian street vendor uh, set himself on fire, self-humiliated himself in in 2010 in December, it really it really ignited a powder keg. The people it, all across the Middle East have sort of been facing this reason to revolt, and it's just been sort of counting pros and cons. And eventually, it's come to this point where they can't take it anymore um there have been bread riots in the 80s and 90s in egypt and jordan but now the opportunity has come really what you're seeing is this long history of closeted unrest but now it's just coming to to fruition for example nawala saadawi has is the oldest feminist activist in egypt she didn't just start this a few months ago she was always the head of the game she's always been proprieting human rights and women's rights in egypt so what you're seeing now is finally an opportunity to make our voices heard. But those voices have always been been there. All right. So last question I wanted to ask you. It's the same thing I asked Hafsa during our interview. What happened in Egypt was a relatively peaceful 
revolution and certainly peaceful on the part of the protesters. Do you think there's a lesson that can be learned there for the rest of the Middle East and for protesters in the rest of the region who are trying to overthrow their repressive regimes, that they can do it without resorting to violence and that this is something that can really prevent the message of terrorism from resonating with the people, that there is a, a way, a nonviolent way that can still get the type of social and political change that they're trying to see accomplished? Uh, you know, I, I have enormous respect for the people of Egypt. They, they, they came out in number. They came out in spirit. They didn't have to resort to violence because they were collectively asking for the same thing. We want Mubarak out. But the revolution isn't over yet by far. What we've seen from this is that the people matter. This idea, though, of, of terrorism or the war on terrorism is, is a construction of resistance fighting. Now, this is not to deny that terrorism exists. Of course it does. But for instance, what we see in, in the occupied ter- territories in, in Palestine, the West Bank and Gaza, there have been nonviolent resistance movements, but those movements are quieted or they're not focused on. And what we hear about or what uh, gets focused on in the Western media are the violent aspects of disgruntled parties or disgruntled youth. But those, like I said, those nonviolent movements have always existed. People are now just taking the opportunity to make their voices heard. Okay, well, that was a controversial point to end on, but we're all out of time. It was great having you on. And anything you want to say about Baca when you guys meet or for anybody who wants to get more involved with the organization? Sure, I'd love to. We just finished Palestine Awareness Week last week. And if I may say so myself, it was a great success. Next week, spring break, of course. Tomorrow, we're having a general body meeting. And to end this month, we're going to have the Afghanistan fundraiser on March 21st. We're bringing Malai Joya. And on April 19th, we're having an event called Sexuality uh, in the Middle East and its Diasporas. And I hope to see a, a great turnout for both events. All right. Thank you for joining us. And it was great having you on. Thank you very much. Well, that was Core of the Matter for this week, everybody. I'm your host, Yashwant Manjanath. Join us next week when, right now, what we have scheduled is a conversation with CAPS, a on-campus organization here at Rutgers University, which provides counseling and psychiatric services for students struggling with stress or, or other mental issues. I think it would be a great thing for us here at the core to spread some awareness about what it is that they do, what service they provide. So I hope you guys check that show out. Again, Core of the Matter on every Tuesday night from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Hope you guys enjoyed today's show about Egypt and the Middle East. And before I get out of here, if you have any questions or an idea for a future Core of the Matter, you can email me at publicaffairsdirector at thecore.fm. That's publicaffairsdirector at thecore.fm. That's all for this week. Thank you for joining us. You're listening to 90.3 The Core. Stay tuned for some more great Core radio. You've been listening to The Core of the Matter on 90.3 The Core. 
Opinions expressed on the core of the matter are those of the participants only, and not necessarily those of WVPHFM or Rutgers University.